Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to episode 3.4 of the Mongol Empire podcast, The Rise of Temujin. Yes, this is the fourth instalment looking at how Chinggis Khan came to power and unified the people of the steppe. So far, we have covered the legendary origins of the Mongol people, the trials suffered by Temujin during his childhood, and last time out we saw him take his first steps towards tribal leadership. If you haven't heard any of that, it's worth doing so, as it will give some context to today's episode. Before we crack on though, I should highlight the map which I've created, which can be found over at mongolempirepodcast.com. It illustrates the rough geographic locations of each tribe, uh, discussed in the last episode, 3.3, and it also shows the location of the Jin and Sisia in northern China. As a first attempt at creating a map, it's not too bad, I don't think. Anyway, that's over at mongolempirepodcast.com, along with the usual sources and a family tree, showing a line of descent from Alan the Fair. So let's crack on with the show. And we return to the early 1180s, where previously we had left events on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Well, as much of a cliffhanger as widely written about historic events can be. Bort had been safely rescued from the clutches of the Merkit tribe by an alliance of Togril Khan of the Karaid and Jamuga, leader of the Jadaran clan, who was also Anda to Temujin. But she was pregnant and would give birth to the couple's first child, or first male child, depending on who you read, named Jockey. The secret history suggests that the capture and release of Bort happens within a short period of time when in reality, it's likely that her stay with the Merkit stretched into months. As a spoil of war, Bort was given to the Merkit leader Chilga, who admitted to having laid hands on her and keeping her in his tent. Rashid al-Din tries to preserve the dignity of the ruling house by stating that Bort was already pregnant when she was taken by the Merkit, who then, for some unexplained reason, decide to hand her over to Togril, who looks after her. Temujin then only finds out via back channels that his father, in inverted commas, has his wife, and then he sends messengers to get her back. On the journey back to Temujin, she gives birth to Jockey. Now, the time frame that Rashid al-Din portrays may be correct, but the story itself makes no sense, and is in complete contrast to the secret history, which states that she was given to Chilga. For the actual birth of Jockey, the secret history says, well, it says nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. The silence is deafening. The legitimate questions that hung over Jockey's paternity would dog him for his whole life, and lead to strained relationships between him, Temujin, and his other brothers. And spoiler alert, he won't be the successor to Chinggis Khan. So, apart from Bort's inconvenient pregnancy, the raid also had the effect of bringing Temujin and Jamuga together, and they decided that the time was right to renew their Anda oath for a third time, which was completed by exchanging golden belts and war horses obtained from the raid on the Merkit. Quote, We've heard the elders say, when two men become Anda, their lives become one. One will never desert the other, and will always defend him. This is the way we'll act from now on. We'll renew our old pledge and love each other forever. End quote. I think this passage sums up the level of commitment and seriousness of pledging Ander. 
It was supposed to be an unbreakable bond, but be of benefit to both parties. For Temujin and Jamuga, this and a pledge would keep them harmoniously together for over a year, but the relationship was destined to break down. Both men were highly ambitious, but these ambitions overlapped. Providing unconditional support to the other man would mean sacrificing his own plans. Jamuga was a prince of the Jadaran clan, leader of 20,000 men, and an established steppe leader. As steppe nobility, he would have expected people to gravitate towards his banner, and that included those with noble pretensions. And his ander was a man with pretensions to nobility. Temujin may have been a legitimate prince, but he had nothing to back it up. He still had few followers, and was pretty much destitute in comparison to Jamuga. His dreams of restoring the family to the head of the Mongol people were also obstructed by the strength of the Jadaran, who counted some of Temujin's potential subjects in their number. And whilst he may have considered the Andabon to have put him on an equal footing with Jamuga, it was a view that was probably not shared. Jamuga likely only saw Temujin as a vassal, and was certainly not going to weaken himself to provide Temujin with his own clan, especially knowing that it was unlikely to be subservient to the Jadaran. It seems that Temujin was acutely aware of his weakness. He made connections with other clan leaders and individuals within the Jadaran, and grew his reputation as a leader. So, perhaps carried away by the success of the campaign against the Merkit, the two men had enthusiastically recommitted to being Ander, but a year down the line, this relationship was now an impediment. It was time to separate. The break finally came whilst they were moving camp, and with one comment, Jamuga was able to turn their relationship from an alliance to open rivalry. Quote, Let's pitch our camp near the mountains. Let the cattle herders make a camp for themselves. Let's pitch our camp near the stream. Let the shepherds look for their own food. End quote. Baffled by this statement, like I'm sure we all are a bit, Temujin turned to his mother to try to get some understanding, but before she had a chance to respond, Bort cut in with her own interpretation. Quote, They say Ander Jamuga's a fickle man. I think the time's come when he's finally grown tired of us. These words are meant to cover some kind of plot. When he stops, let's not pitch our camp. Let's tell our people to keep right on moving. And if we travel all night, by daybreak our camps will be well separated. End quote. Temujin accepted her advice. And so when Jamuga stopped to camp, Temujin led his followers on. It seems that his following had greatly increased, to the extent that when they accidentally stumbled into the camp of the Taiichigud, instead of looking for a fight, as might have been expected, the Taiichigud simply fled to Jamuga. What did Jamuga's statement mean? Obviously we've heard Bort's interpretation, but how have modern scholars interpreted it? We turn to Paul Rashnevsky, who suggests that Jamuga's words show a resentment between the cattle or horse breeders who represent the aristocracy, and the sheep breeders who represented everyone else. As we've reiterated on a number of occasions, Temujin's had little wealth, so the statement may actually be a dig at the high status he is holding himself in around Jamuga's camp. 
and there's some traction to the idea that Temujin's position in the camp represented a break from tradition. The separation of the two men saw a large number of people transfer their loyalty from Jamuga to Temujin. But there were few wholesale clan desertions from the Jadaran. The only two noted by the secret history were the Chinos and Bagaran clans, and the Bagaran's defection was notable because they were blood relatives of Jadaran and Shamuga. But the majority of Temujin's followers were individuals and family groups who came from a large number of minor clans. Bogorchu's family came to join Temujin, as did Jelmi's younger brother, the future General Subutai. Why did they choose Temujin over Jamuga? What was his appeal? It may have come down to what the two men represented. Jamuga was very much a symbol of tradition, where power was held by the dominant clan, a position that could only be obtained from blood ties rather than from any skill or ability. Temujin offered something a little different. It was true that his power base was his family, but the men who served him came from nowhere of any repute. Bogorchu may have come from a wealthy background, but his family were asset-rich rather than clan leaders. Jelme was the son of a blacksmith, and initially played the role of servant in Temujin's household. Lacking the established clan or tribe hierarchy he would have inherited had Yesugai survived longer, power was exercised directly by himself. He could raise Bogorchu and Jelme to positions of importance because he had none of the tribal politics to interfere with his decision making. Whilst his childhood had been brutal, and let's face it, he was lucky to have survived into adulthood, one of the unexpected consequences of the family's abandonment was that it allowed Temujin to be an absolute ruler, in a world which an individual's power was typically diminished by the clan or tribe system. The biggest evidence of Temujin's change in fortunes came when the senior members of the Borjigin family came to join him. So, it's time to get your family trees out again. First to join Temujin was the trio of Daratai, Sashabeki, and Teichu, who brought with them the Jerkin clan. Daratai was the youngest brother of Yesugai, and Sashabeki and Teichu were the grandchildren of Yesugai's uncle, Okin Barker, who was himself a brother of Cthulhu Khan. So that would make one uncle and two distant cousins. They were followed by Kuchar Beki, the son of Yesugai's older brother Nekun Tezi, and therefore a close cousin to Temujin. Finally, they were all joined by Ultan, the oldest surviving descendant of Cthulhu Khan, so one more distant cousin. Are you still all following? Good. Why did they join Temujin? He was neither the most senior member of the family, Ultan holds that honour, Neither was he from a particularly prominent branch of the family. Heck, they had abandoned him for the previous 20 or so years. Putting on my cynical hat for a minute, I'm very good at doing that, it seems likely that they felt they had an opportunity to influence or control a popular young leader. But if it was personal power that these senior family members were after, then they would soon realise that they had backed the wrong man. With this influx of people... Temujin had achieved one of his aims. He was now a legitimate steppe leader, with a following that matched his ambition. He had brought some of the Mongol people back under his banner, and even had the support of family members who possibly hadn't supported his father. 
The senior Borzhigins, evidently feeling that the time was right to announce the return of the Mongol people, called for a Kurultai to take place. The Kurultai was a meeting which was attended by family members and was used as a forum to bring together ideas to pass important decisions, such as dealing with issues of succession. Think of it along the lines of a parliament, except that the attendees are not MPs, elected or representative of the people. Their focus is entirely on the ruling family and how to further their own interests. And at this point, the concern of the senior members of the Borzhigin family is about making Temujin Khan of the Mongols. Quote, We want you to be Khan. Temujin, if you'll be our Khan, we'll search through the spoils for the beautiful women and virgins, for the great palace tents, for the young virgins and loveliest women, for the finest geldings and mares. We'll gather all these and bring them to you. When we go off to hunt for wild game, we'll go out first to drive them together for you to kill. We'll drive the wild animals of the steppe together, so that they stand leg to leg. If we disobey your command during battle, take away our possessions, our children and wives. Leave us in the dust, cutting off our heads where we stand and letting them fall to the ground. If we disobey your counsel in peacetime, take away our tents and our goods, our wives and our children. Leave us behind when you move, abandoned in a desert without a protector. Having given their word, having taken this oath, they proclaimed Temujin Khan of the Mongol and gave him the name Chinggis Khan. End quote. Leaving aside the name Chinggis Khan for a moment, if we read further ahead, the secret history gives us a better idea of how the process of becoming Khan actually went. Without too many spoilers, in this next passage, Temujin is admonishing the same family members who made him Khan for abandoning him. Quote, We acknowledge that Kuchar was the son of Nekontesi, and said to you, Kuchar, out of all of us, you should be Khan. You are unwilling. When we said to you, Ultan, you are the son of Kutula Khan, who governed us all. Ultan, out of all of us, you should be Khan. You also refused. When we said, let's ask the son of the sons of Okinbarka, Kabul's eldest son. Both Sachabeki and Taichu should be our rulers. I couldn't convince them to accept. So when I said to you, you be our Khan, you refused. When you said to me, you be our Khan, I agreed to govern our people. End quote. Whether this represents a genuine reluctance on Temujin's part to assume the title of Khan or just an act expected by the chosen candidate isn't clear. But what is certain is that Temujin's idea of loyalty meant that he would have expected the oaths of loyalty sworn by the senior family members to have been upheld. If we return quickly to the title of Chinggis Khan, it seems highly unlikely that he would have been given this title at this point. And in fact, the previous quote comes from an event some years down the line from where we are, but Temujin still refers to himself as Temujin. Chinggis Khan roughly translates to Universal or Oceanic Khan, which would make more sense to apply once the majority of the Mongolian tribes had been subjugated in 1206. In the mid-1180s, which is of course where we are, 
Temujin is weaker than his Ander Zemuga, and is still a vassal of the Koreid. He may have his own tribe, but he was still far weaker than his peers and rivals. So Temujin was not Chinggis Khan, but he was a legitimately elected Khan who had the support of his extended family. We'll finish off this episode by looking at how Temujin began to implement a political structure in his new tribe, and how this may have gone against the expectations of the senior Borjigans. The first to be honoured by the new Khan were essentially men of no reputation or standing. His brother Kassar was one of four men named as the Khan's personal swordsman. Belgatai was put in charge of the horses. A man named Molkalku was put in charge of the cattle, and he named four other men as his arrows, a position that seems to have been both diplomat and personal guard. For Bogorchu and Jelmi, Temujin reserved the highest honour. Quote, You two, from the time when there was no one to fight beside me but my own shadow, you were my shadow and gave my mind rest. That will always be in my thoughts. From the time when there was nothing to whip my horses with but their own tails, you were their tails and gave my heart peace. That will always be in my heart. Since you were the first two who came to my side, you will be chiefs over all the rest of the people. End quote. This suggests that Bogorchu and Jelme were elevated to a position of importance that was only just behind Temujin himself. But these rewards extended beyond the individual, with the family of a loyal man also receiving honours. In Bogorchu's case, his kinsman, the Cherby family, obtained positions of great importance within Temujin's Jur, taking up the position of archer, cook, head shepherd, chief carter, and head of household. Jelme's brother Subutai was given a position that sounded vaguely like a chief recruiter for Temujin's army. Despite being elected Khan, Temujin was aware of his limitations, and the fact that the loyalty of the senior clan members, family or otherwise, could be fickle. So he put the ball into their court. Quote, if heaven and earth grant me their protection so that my powers increase, then each of you elders of the clans who've chosen to leave And Jamuga and follow me will be happy with the choice you've made. I'll give you each your position and office. End quote. By promoting men who had little prestige or repute in the established tribal hierarchy, Temujin was showing that status wasn't important for advancement in his tribe. The overriding factor was loyalty. And now he was throwing the gauntlet down to men who had joined him and brought with them a large following. Support my ambitions and you too will be justly rewarded. In the short term, I feel this would have placated the family members who had elevated him to Khan. They had little interest in household positions, and it seems likely that their main aim was to live off the spoils of the hunts and raids and generally benefit from the realisation of Temujin's ambitions. Problem was that the ambitions of the senior Borjigins would very quickly be at odds with their Khan. They were thinking too small and were too self-centred. Temujin was now planning for bigger things. He had achieved his goal of being an independent leader. He had his own tribe. But of course he was still weak. He was surrounded by more powerful clans. He had gained the enmity of the Merkit tribe. And was still a vassal to Togrul. 
He needed to get stronger. He needed his tribe to get bigger. And to do so, he required the absolute loyalty of those surrounding him. So, this is where we leave Temujin for this episode, as leader of his own tribe. If you want to find out what sources I've used for this episode and all of the previous ones, then I encourage you to head over to mongolempirepodcast.com where they are all listed, along with the new map and also a family tree of the Borjigin family, just to try to make things a little less confusing. If you want to get in contact with the podcast, you can do so by leaving a message on Podbean or iTunes or Stitcher. You can drop the show an email, Cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or you can find me on Twitter at mongolempirepod. But until next time, take care. And thanks for listening.